Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Numbers 21. We'll be reading from verses 10 through 35 as we continue on in our series on Numbers. Numbers 21, starting at verse 10. Let's hear God's word. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Ayah Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is on the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa, and the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar, and leads to the border of Moab. And there they continue to beer, that is, the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the peoples dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matana, and from Matana they went to Nahalia, and from Nahalia they went to Bamoth, and from Bamoth they went to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into a field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites. For the border of the Ammonites was strong, and Israel took all these cities. And Israel settled in the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and all of its villages, And Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sion be established. For fire came from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sion. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to the Amorite king, Sion. 
So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nopha. Fire spread as far as Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who lived there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them he and all his people, to the battle at Andrea. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed the land. Pray with me. Oh, Father God, Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word and how we see how you have acted through history on behalf of your people to deliver them, to provide for them, and to establish your kingdom. So, Lord, as we look at this passage tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us, that you would speak to our hearts through it, and that you would bless your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when my children were younger, we took a trip out west. It was a marvelous trip seeing the beauty of our nation, the purple mountains' majesties above the fruited plain. It was a great trip, that is, until we drove back home through Kansas. Kansas. Have you ever driven through Kansas in a day? We did. We drove through Kansas in the burning heat of August with three kids in the back seat. And there were no purple mountains to look at. Only row after row after row of endless fields of corn. No trees, nothing. Not even roadkill to break the monotony. Nothing but sky and corn as high as an elephant's eye. I never want to drive through Kansas again. I know there's no such thing as purgatory. But if there was, if there was, driving through Kansas in the hot August sun would be its own level of punishment. And when we read these verses tonight, we wonder what it must have been like for the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. Did their journey feel similar to a road trip through Kansas? Was there a sense of monotony? Were they wondering as they wandered, when will we get to the promised land? They had certainly seen the Lord's grace and faithfulness in their travels. In the previous verses in Numbers 21, the Lord had led them to victory over the Canaanites. And yet despite the Lord's faithfulness, they were unfaithful to him. And they sinned against the Lord by rebelling against him, grumbling and complaining and unbelief, desiring to go back to captivity in Egypt rather than follow their Lord. 
And so the Lord sent poisonous snakes to strike them in judgment for their lack of faith. But then, once again, the Lord showed his faithfulness to them. For when they called out to him in faith and repentance, he rescued them again giving them a lifeline of salvation from the serpents. The Lord had instructed them if they would only look at the bronze serpent on the pole, they would live. So they experienced salvation from their sin of rebellion by God's grace. So they were twice delivered in just the beginning verses of this chapter. And then after that event... In the following verses, they seem to still be wandering in the wilderness, going from place to place. Scripture records a list of places unknown to us where they camped at, Oboth and the Valley of Zered, and then there's the Wahab and the Sufa and Ar, and those last three that are listed are in the book of the Wars of the Lord. And this recorded snippet from that book is all that exists from that ancient extra-biblical book. But that book, given its title, possibly recorded songs about victorious battles or listed boundaries or tribal territories. But in any case, these were familiar places to the traveling Israelites, but they were nowhere places. Nowhere places on what seemed to be an endless road trip. The Israelites had no place to hang their hat or put down roots. The people were transient. And from all appearances, it must have seemed that their life was completely transitory. It seems like they were going nowhere fast. As one commentator puts it, the travelogue of desert camps heightens our awareness of the experience of the new generation of Israelites of traveling on and on while apparently going nowhere. This new generation seems to be proceeding onward through a succession of nowhere places in the wilderness around Moab just as their fathers had before them. Now, if we were to only read these beginning verses of this chapter, these beginning verses of endless travel and encampments, they would impress upon us a sense of absolute futility. We can imagine that if Paul, John, and George were on the road with them, they would be singing, He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody. He doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Why the delay? Lord, why not just get on with it? We could almost hear the Israelites saying the phrase that every parent hears on a long road trip, Are we there yet? But what do we hear? We hear nothing. And it's striking, isn't it? In verses 10 through 15, when the Israelites are making camp and then breaking camp to go to the next camp, what do we hear? We hear the sound of silence. 
They do not grumble or complain about having to pull up tents and then travel on a hot, dusty road only to have to put up tents again in yet another wilderness. There isn't any grumbling, despite the seeming lack of movement to get to the promised land. Now, why is that? Perhaps it's because this new generation had finally come to a place where they had trusted the Lord, that he was indeed able to get them to the promised land. But it would be on his timetable and not theirs. Though imperfect, they had faith in a sovereign God who sought their good. What a contrast this is to the world's perspective of those who have no hope and are without God in this world, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. What do those have who have no faith in our sovereign, saving Lord, but a belief system that ends up on the skids? What do they have in this world but a gnawing sense of futility? An overwhelming sense of despair that arises from a worldview that leads to the logical conclusion that he who dies with the most toys, well, he dies and is nothing, no more. So what is all the striving and the sweat and the toil of if everything ends in futility? I think this secular sense of futility about life is summed up well in the Joni Mitchell song, Circle Game. And the seasons, they go round and round, and the painted ponies go up and down. We're captive on the carousel of time. We can return, we, can on, we can't return, we can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round in the circle game pretty tune, depressing song. Because what does the song say? That we just go around and round and round the carousel of time. We're held captive to it, stuck on a painted pony on the amusement ride of life, going up and down and up and down and up and down till the ride stops. And then what? Nothingness. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says it well, that if life under the sun, life as just confined to this world, if that is all that there is, then in the final analysis, life is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, all is vanity. You cannot escape that conclusion. But, beloved, we have been so blessed. We have been so blessed to to know and to be loved by a sovereign, saving God who has revealed himself through his word. And in his word this evening, we see once again how faithful he was to his people. And that only encourages us to see how faithful that he has been to us in our lives. For he never, ever changes The faithful Lord remains faithful through all generations, as Pastor Dave preached on last week. And once again, we see in this passage that the Israelites' long delay was pregnant with meaning. 
For in the delay, God's people experienced God's faithfulness and his grace in a way which they would not have if they had marched right into the promised land. So the continued wandering was not futile, but through it the Lord demonstrated his faithfulness, and in doing so, he stretched their faith. Once again, the Lord allowed the delay to show this new generation what he demonstrated to the old generation, some of who were still around, that he is the sovereign Lord, their Savior, who will faithfully provide. They had already experienced his saving grace by providing them a way for life and for forgiveness after they had rebelled like their forefathers and they were bitten by snakes in just judgment for their unbelief. The Lord had saved them from a well-deserved destruction solely by his grace through faith as they looked to the remedy, the pole with this bronze snake on it. And then as they were traveling through a dry and weary land where there is no water, they once again were delivered from doom by the gracious hand of God. We see this in verse 16 as they travel to beer, and that beer the Lord provides them life-sustaining, refreshing water from a well. And by all rights, he could have just let them die in the desert for their rebellion. But he shows them his loving kindness to them, which they didn't deserve. And notice the way that he does it in verse 16. It is the Lord who initiates it before. They even have to ask. He tells Moses, gather the people so that I may give them water. He wants to show them his loving kindness to them and leave no doubt in their mind that this water in the wilderness is his gift to them so that they know and they experience his faithful care for them despite their unfaithfulness. And what is their response? Well, the sound of silence is broken and we hear singing. The desert is alive with the sound of music as they sing, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the peoples dug with the scepter and with their staffs. Now about this song, we can note something that most likely, about this song, that most likely the princes and the nobles mentioned in this song were the 70 elders of Israel under the guidance of Moses. They're the ones who dug the well in the dust in the wilderness with their staff and outpoured miraculously water from the gracious hand of God. And as one commentator observes, the fact that it is the elders who bring out the water and not Moses may be a signal of transition as Moses is nearing the end of his leadership and the end of his life. In Numbers 20, it was Moses who struck the rock with his staff to bring out water. But here, in this miraculous incident, it is the tribal heads who lead the way. Moses provides them an opportunity to lead as he knows that his time is short and they will be going on without him. In any case, what is the result of this salvation? 
singing. And as one commentator observes, it is the first time we hear the Israelites sing since Exodus 15, when God's people were delivered out of Egypt and Miriam led the women's choir in rejoicing. There is the sweet sound of music in the air again as they rejoice at the Lord's goodness and grace to them. He proves himself true once again and answers their previously grumbling complaint, which they voiced in verse 5, Are we to die here, for there is no water in the barren wilderness? And the answer is no emphatic no because the Lord miraculously supplies it demonstrating once again his faithful provision for them just as he did in Numbers 20 when he made water come from the rock and as Pastor Matt pointed out when he preached on that passage that rock was a symbol for Christ himself who gives us living water of eternal life And Paul highlights this truth in 1 Corinthians 10, referring back to Numbers 20. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And the Lord himself alluded to the Israelites' wilderness experience in John 7, 38, when he said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He is the rock from whom refreshing streams of life flow. And he gives us his Holy Spirit who indwells within us and who fills us and whose power flows from us, who restores our thirsty souls. And that truth is once again reiterated by this miraculous provision of refreshing, life-sustaining water. So far we have seen how the Lord exhibited his faithfulness and grace to his people three times in giving them victory in battle over their enemy, and then saving them from deadly snakes, and then supplying them with water in a barren land. And all of these deliverances foreshadow the greater deliverance that we have in Christ. And again, having been saved, God's people sing. And singing is the natural and right response to such a great salvation. As one commentator puts it, salvation turns sinners into singers as we praise God for his deliverance. Well, if God's people of old burst out in song over God's deliverance from physical death, how much more so should we sing, rejoicing over a greater deliverance, our salvation from spiritual death and eternal judgment because of what Christ has done for us? So we sing, rejoice, O pure in heart. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing. Your festal banner wave on high, the cross of Christ, your King. Do we have music in our hearts and a song of rejoicing on our lips when we reflect on the Lord's astounding grace and magnanimous mercy towards us? Well, let's move on like the Israelites. 
And as we do, we find yet another act of the Lord's faithfulness and grace to the Israelites on their long and windy road to the promised land. And in the remaining section of the chapter, we see how God's people go from singing to settling, which comes, by the way, of slaying. But nonetheless, as this chapter progresses, we see that the times, they are changing. As something new is afoot, there is a new development in what the Lord is doing. After more wilderness wanderings, we see in verse 21 that they enter the territory of the Amorite king, King Sion. And in verse 21, we see that the Israelites told King Sion, we just want to peacefully pass through your territory, and we won't take so much as a grape from your fields or a drop of water from your wells. But King Sion would have none of it. And so the Amorites become Israel's adversary, and they attack Israel. Now you may recall that it's about a similar situation that occurred in Numbers 20 when Moses asked permission of the king of Edom to pass safely through his land, promising not to disturb their vineyards or wells. But the king of Edom refused and arrayed an army poised to attack Israel. But Moses would not lead a battle against them. Instead, the Israelites went away. Why? Well, they would not go to war against the Edomites because they were kin. The Edomites being descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. And according to Deuteronomy 23.7, the law prevented the Israelites from waging war against their distant cousins. They were not to abhor the Edomites who were their brothers, the law said. So they backed away when they were threatened by them. But the Amorites... The Amorites, well, they were a whole different story. The Lord allowed them to defend themselves against the Amorites who were the aggressors and sought to destroy God's people. And it was an amazing victory that the Israelites were able to destroy the forces of King Sion. For they didn't just destroy an army, but they ended up possessing the land, as we see in verse 25. And they began to settle in the land of the Amorites. So once again, the Lord demonstrated his faithfulness to his people by defeating their enemies who sought to destroy them. They experienced yet another deliverance. So we are four for four so far in this chapter. And then we hear music, and we hear singing. Scripture records this song in the following verses, but this song is a bit unusual. In verses 27 through 30, Amorite ballad singers are singing, and not the Israelites. And they are singing about the previous victory of the Amorites against the Moabites. Before the Amorite battle with Israel, the Amorites had attacked and taken Moabite land, which then came under the control of the Amorites. So why would Scripture record a victory battle song of the Amorites after they defeated the Moabites? Well, it was to show that Israel, under the Lord's direction, was stronger than both the Amorites and the Moabites. If Israel could conquer the Amorites who conquered the Moabites, then Israel could conquer the Moabites too. 
And basically what we see in chapter 21 is that Israel had taken the original Moabite land when they won the battle against the Amorites, who had taken the Moabite land first. So what is to be gleaned from this? But that the Moabites ought to be very, very, very concerned about the Israelites. And that concern is palatable, as we see in the following chapters when King Balak of Moab seeks to thwart God's people. So once again, we see the faithfulness of the Lord in defending his people against their enemies over whom God will prevail. And then, if that weren't enough, we read in the remaining verses how the Lord allows the Israelites to prevail over another Amorite king, King Agabeshon, in verses 31 through 34. And King Bashan, King Og was like a giant of, the man, of a man. He was huge. He was at least 10 feet tall, strong and powerful, as Moses records in Deuteronomy 3, which gives us a more complete, detailed account of the battles against the Amorite kings. So it is no wonder that the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. Because this King Og was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And yet, despite the mass power and force of the Amorites, the Lord gives the people yet another victory, another deliverance, five for five. And not only was the Lord faithful to his people to defend them and give them a victory over their enemies, the Amorites, but this account also shows how the Lord is faithful to his word, to his promises. For this victory over the Amorite kings was the start of a fulfillment of a promise that the Lord made to Abraham centuries ago. And we find that promise in Genesis 15 when the Lord tells Abraham that his descendants would be foreigners in Egypt for 400 years, but then after 400 years they would be delivered and his people would go back to the land. And when would they go back to the land? when the iniquity of the Amorites is full. In other words, the Lord was planning to destroy the Amorites in judgment. The Amorites were the descendants of the Canaanites, and they were evil to their very core. Leviticus 18 lists some of the horrendous acts that they committed, including all forms of sexual perversion and child sacrifice. And the stench of their evil was so great that the Lord would judge them by absolutely wiping them out. And now that time had come for judgment. And he used his people to do it as they fought and defeated the Amorites and took their land. So it just goes to show once again that the long delay of wandering in the wilderness was purposeful not futile. Their wilderness wanderings gave Israel time to grow in their faith as they witnessed God's deliverance time and time again. And the long delay was also purposeful in showing the faithfulness of the Lord to his word. What he says, he will do. He was true to his word when he said that he would judge the Amorites and destroy their evil from the land. And he did it in his time. For Second Peter 3 says, when the Lord, 
one day. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. And what was the result of that victory? The result was that Moses appointed the land of the Amorites to the Reubenites, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe, half-tribe of Manasseh, and they settled there. And in defeating Israel's enemies, God's people could see that nothing, nothing, nothing can thwart the advancement of God's kingdom. No force, no matter how strong, can, nothing can prevail against the Lord and his people. He will win in the end. And in this world that seems so out of kilter, where evil is called good and good is called evil, does that not encourage us to know that ultimately the Lord wins and his kingdom will have the final victory? Yes, his people are embattled, challenged, and persecuted, but nothing, nothing can prevail against his church. And this chapter abounds with the grace of the Lord. For what do we see? That rebellious sinners become singers and then end up settlers. Israel begins to inhabit the land, all by the grace of God, who is faithful to his promises and to his people. And the land that they possess is just a foretaste of the blessings, greater blessings to come. For as they conquered the Amorite land, it was but a glimmer of what lay ahead of greater blessings, of a fuller fulfillment of the Lord's promises. This chapter was just the appetizer because it points to when God's people would enter into the promised land and take possession of it and win against their enemies to establish a nation. And from that nation would come an even greater blessing. The prophets of old said that King David's lineage, from his lineage would come a universal king who would reign forever, who would do battle, not on land or for territory to inhabit, but so that he could inhabit our hearts and reign over our lives and deliver us. And in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus entered the world as our sinless Savior who would do battle not on a battlefield but on the cross, taking upon himself the just judgment for our sin so that we could be free from it. And by his resurrection, he vanquished our greatest enemy, the futility of death. And he brought us new life and hope for his people who receive his mercy and grace through faith, just like the Israelites did in these wilderness wanderings. In his deliverance, we don't possess a land, but rather he, his spirit, inhabits our hearts. And we, too, are sinners who have learned to sing of God's deliverance. And we will one day be settlers in a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns to complete what he has begun, 
We're in a place in a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more crying or pain or sorrow or death and the final end of futility begins. But until then, we have a foretaste of what will be. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, as we've traveled through this chapter, what seemed like futility was really an exercise in seeing God's faithfulness as he delivered his people and gave them a foretaste of the blessings yet to come. And as they wandered in the wilderness, these sinners became singers and then settlers. And how often is it in our lives that our lives can appear to be a seeming exercise in futility? But in hindsight, we see the Lord's faithfulness in those times. As I get older and more of my life is in the rearview mirror, I can see how the Lord used even the most painful things in the past to provide me and prepare me for what is needed in the present. So it was not wasted. He used those difficult times to demonstrate his faithfulness and to strengthen my faith. And in reassuring me of his presence, I get a foretaste of what is yet to come. So Numbers 21 is a pattern of our own experience with the Lord, who makes sinners into singers who have a future and a hope as settlers in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how we thank you for your word and for the comfort and encouragement it is to us. For through it we see your great deliverance for us through Christ our Savior. Oh Lord, we thank you for what you have accomplished for us through your death and for, through your resurrection life. And we know, Lord, that you are always with us, that you are guiding us, and Lord, that you have given us a foretaste of what glory we will have ahead as your Holy Spirit indwells within us. So we pray, Lord, that as we go forth this week, you would bless us and help us to be your witnesses to a dark and dying world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.